If I were to, to tell you that next Sunday, not only will be a potluck fellowship, not only will be a children's program, but will also be show and tell day at Elm Grove Baptist Church. And you can bring, just like in elementary school, one item that's very special that you have a story about and you can come and tell everybody about your item. Show and tell at Elm Grove. Here's what I would bring. This is this is a baseball helmet that probably doesn't fit very well anymore. But I have this in my office, and, and it sits up on top of one of my bookshelves with some other stuff from when I played baseball in high school. I've got, I've got one bookshelf that houses some high school things and another bookshelf that, that houses some college things. And it's all really old and dusty now, which makes me feel really bad. But, but this particular helmet, if, if things could talk, the stories this one would tell, it would tell you about when I got it. Because it was a very special moment for me when I was handed this batting helmet as a freshman at Pleasure Ridge Park High School, which meant that I'd made the varsity team. And here's your varsity helmet. And if nothing else in my career had happened, I could have died happy right there because that was my goal. I had reached the pinnacle, at least it seemed for me at the time, in baseball. And they handed me the helmet. And I put it on and I wore it. And, and then it would tell you the story of, of how the, the ear flaps began to break away a little bit. And you can see the tape that I was bound and determined not to get a new helmet because this was so special to me, but simply to tape it up and to make sure that, that it stayed there. It, it would tell you the story of, of how we, we won the, the state championship in 1994 and the helmet was there all along and... And it would tell you the story the following year of me loaning this helmet out. I, I hit fourth in the order when I was a senior, and our guy who hit ninth didn't have the helmet that fit him, and so he used to borrow my helmet. It would tell you the story of in the state championship game that year he attempted a bunt, and the ball came and hit him right here and bent the helmet. And I had to play the rest of the game with a bent helmet. <laughs> It would tell you those great kind of moments. And then, in its final words, it would tell you how it got cracked on both sides. After I walked and was picked off first base by the catcher, it's really embarrassing, <laughs> came back into the dugout and threw my helmet across the dugout, hitting a concrete wall and smashing it, making it useless. It would have a lot of stories. Very special. If you were to bring something like that, I wonder how easily you'd be able to talk about it. You say, I've got to tell you this story about this item. Just like it's easy for me to talk about that. You have things that, that are in your possession, maybe on a shelf at home, in a box in the attic, and you just say, this is, this is something that Boy, if, if it could talk, the stories that it would tell. It, it's the story that, that you've got to hear. This morning, we're going to look at the one story that the world has got to hear. They've got to hear it from us. It's got to be more than just something we put on the shelf and occasionally bring it down and reminisce. The story that needs to be active and alive in each of us. The story of what God, through Jesus, has done in our lives. The one story that if I were to say, this is what you have to talk about, your show-and-tell story, 
Actually, as Jesus will put it, it's more of a go and tell story. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to look at just a few verses. Some verses that highlight the story right at the end of the time that Jesus spent here physically on earth. And we're getting close now to the end of our series called Go. It will end next week. Ten weeks that we've been in this. The idea that Jesus said in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. That we are to be on the go for him. Telling his story. Sharing our faith with other folks. And this is number nine in a series of ten. The goal through this series has been how do we increase our understanding of life on mission, missional living for the Lord. How, how do we know what that means? What does it even look like? How do we increase our motivation to want to live that way more, to want to talk about the Lord more in a world that really doesn't want to hear it, we think? And then how can we increase our application? How can we, how can we actually do those things more? My goal really for this whole series in wrapping those things up, has been just to make it as simple as possible, a starting point for you, maybe something that you resonate with to say, you know what, I can do that. I'm a little bit scared. I'm a little nervous about this. I'm not sure completely, but you know, I, could, I could do that. And today is just another one along that line. We, we've looked at lots of different scriptures so far. We've looked at people who have done this. And today we're going to look at, at the words of Jesus right before he left earth to go back to heaven this passage that we'll see today really serves as the introduction and really the outline for the book of Acts. If you want to know how, how the book of Acts unfolds, then we'll look at verse 8 and, and we'll see really how it works out from there. So let's look at it together. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, really short little passage this morning, but a lot of stuff packed into this. When Jesus was about to leave, they had seen him, his disciples had seen him live, they had seen him crucified, and now they've seen him resurrected. And he's told them, now it's my time to go back to the Father. I will send the Holy Spirit who will be in and among all of you. And you'll continue the work that I've done. But there's still some confusion. They're not totally sure what all that really, really means. You can see there in verse 6, they're not totally with this idea that Jesus is going to be gone. And life for them is not going to change physically and politically. They say to him... Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Now, that is a very Jewish question. For us, it may not make a lot of sense. But understand that during the time, their point of reference was the Roman government who made life very difficult for them, who tolerated the Jews and their religion, but didn't really celebrate them in any way. Really pressed them down and made life difficult. So when they ask this question, they're essentially asking, Hey, Jesus, you know, death can't even stop you, so now's the time for us to take over, right? We're going to revolt now against this Roman government who's made life so difficult for us, and you're the leader. I mean, you're the one who's been sent by God to deliver the Jews, just like Moses did at the Exodus. Jesus, you're going to do this in a way that nobody's ever seen before. It's time, right? It's time for us to get going. Now is when we take over. It's time for us to crush this Roman Empire. For the Jews to rise up in power. And for you, Jesus, to lead us. Are you now restoring 
the power and the prestige of Israel? A very Jewish question, but also a very human question. They were asking out of their humanity, not only out of their Jewishness, because don't we often ask these things, Lord, when's life going to get easier? Uh, Jesus, uh, you, you know, you're, you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. You're the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the, the prince of peace. When am I going to have some peace? When are things here in America going to turn back around so that Christians now have life easier? We ask the same questions. That's the question they're asking. But Jesus had something else in mind for them to do between the time that he left and the time that he promised that he would return. Look at verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Essentially, hey guys, um, you're asking the wrong question. Don't worry about that stuff. That's up to God the Father. Whenever he says it's time for me to come back and truly restore everything, that's when I'll be there. Until then, don't give your attention to things that are of secondary importance. Give your attention, and he'll tell them in verse 8, to what's most important. He says, don't worry about all of that stuff, but you'll receive power. And this was a power they had never known. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They want to know, Lord, is it time now for us to take over? Jesus says, don't worry about that. That's not what's most important for you to do between now and the time that I return. What's most important for you to do is to be my witnesses, he says. You're going to be empowered, indwelt, sent out by the Holy Spirit to tell the greatest story the world has ever known. And the whole rest of the New Testament plays out with them doing this. The book of Acts unfolds. They begin in Jerusalem, and then they expand to the outer regions. And then, by the end of the book of Acts, they've got Spain on their mind. The very ends of the known world, that's where they're heading. And you see in Paul's letters, as he takes his three missionary journeys, that's what he's doing. And so they finally get it. The Holy Spirit gives them power, and they're set out. And nothing else mattered to them in the rest of the book of Acts. It was their one thing that they had to talk about, just like my baseball helmet. That's what they said. This, we've got to tell you the story of Jesus. They were effective witnesses for the Lord, and we are called to follow that same example. This was not just for those people who happened to be gathered with Jesus at the time. This is for disciples of Jesus for all time. Three things that I think, if you're going to be an effective witness, based upon what we see play out in the book of Acts, three things that I think are fairly clear that we all must know. What must we know in order to be effective witnesses for the Lord? Now, I'll just tell you, this is, I'm going to try to make this extremely simple, give you something very easy and simple that you can do this week, and hopefully we'll all be a little bit more motivated to apply these things. The first thing is to know God's story, to know His story. And I'm just going to give it to you all at once and then try to kind of explain it a little bit. If you, if you have ever struggled to talk about, well, here's what God has done, and, and this is really the, the, the grand story of, of what God has done in, in history, you can, you can boil it down really to four different words and, and, and essentially four different eras. Not all of them are the same length of time. But it, it's, it's pretty simple. Let me give you all four words. I'll give you time to write it down because that's going to be kind of tough. Four words, creation... Fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now, I don't want to give you churchy words today, but I think these really do cover the four eras in the Bible that we see. 
three of which have already happened, one of which is still to come. The first word there is creation. Now we know from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that when God created the world, he saw that it was what? Very good. He was pleased. It was exactly the way that it was supposed to be. There was no sin in the world. There was no hurt. There was no pain. Everything was perfect. And he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so in creation, there were no problems. In creation, there was no drama. I mean, that's, that's pretty good. There, 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 was, there were no relationship issues. There was no illness. There was no death. That's the world of Genesis 1 and 2. Creation was exactly the way that God wanted it to be. But then you move to Genesis 3. And you have what's known as the fall of mankind. Sin entered the world. Adam and Eve gave themselves over to the temptations that the serpent threw at them. And ever since then, everything has changed. A pattern that began then has continued to this day. We have a distrust of God's word. You know, the serpent said, did God really say that? Isn't it interesting that in today's world, we have a twisting of scripture? Well, it's not anything new. (laughs) Satan started that way back in the garden of Eden. You sure God said that? Is that really what that means? We have dodging of personal accountability. You know, when God showed up in the garden of Eden and he came to Adam and he says, what have you done? You know what Adam did? What made? In fact, he says, this woman that you gave me, you know who he ultimately blames is God and this woman. What me? I, I, you know, yeah, you know, I, 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 I mean, I participated, but I didn't start it. You know what? It's not my fault that this happened. We have this desire to make ourselves be like God is what for us to be independent and autonomous. You know, when the serpent talked to Eve and she begins to talk back and says, ah, God says we're not supposed to do this. And, and the serpent tells her, look, God just doesn't want you to know what he knows. He doesn't want you to be like him. You can be like God if you'll just give in to this. You can be autonomous. You can run your own life. And ultimately, that's what it's all about anyway. This pattern has emerged and it continues. And so now, because of sin, because of not only their sin, but the sin that's imputed and passed along to us, we're now born with a sinful nature. Sin now stains everything. Even creation is out of whack. Some of you are farmers, and you say, yeah, it's out of whack. I can't get the rain I need at the right time. And then I get too much at the wrong time. And then I get mold and disease in the crops, and I'm trying to do it the right way, but everything is out of whack. Now we're separated from the presence of God. You know, God created the Garden of Eden so he could walk around with Adam and Eve, and it would be perfect. Now we have pain. Now we get sick. Now we visit hospitals. Now we go to funerals. Now we sign divorce papers. Now our children run from God. Now we can't shake our addictions. Now we search for hope and for meaning and for fulfillment and we don't find it. Now people do whatever they think is right. And now we live under the curse of sin, dealing with its power and its penalty, not only in our individual lives, but in our world. God made it all exactly the way he wanted to, and our sin has distorted it. But then the third element, redemption, 
comes into play. Because at the right time, in God's time, He sent Jesus, His one and only Son, to redeem us, to get us out of the curse of sin. It's important to know that Jesus lived a perfect life. He was not just some angelic figure that hovered around. He was a real human, God in human flesh, completely human, completely God, all at the same time, and sinless and perfect. God said that we're to be perfect if we're to be acceptable to Him. No one has ever been able to do that. I look around the room, I see some incredible people. Some of you are my favorite people in the world. I want you to know that. Some of you are not. <laughs> Did I just say that out loud too? Okay, all right. But in all seriousness, some of you are, I mean, I've never met people like many of you that I've gotten to know since I've been here. But not even Eddie Clyde Hale is perfect. Now, I know that's a shock to some of you. Not to, not to Eddie Clyde though, right? I know it. You know, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. None of us has lived a perfect life to make ourselves acceptable to God. And let me tell you, that's the only way you can be made acceptable to God is to be absolutely sinless and perfect. Now, even the most egotistical, self-centered, arrogant person in this room would struggle to say that you have never, ever in your life committed even a small, little, minute sin. We've all done it. And you know, Jesus came... To be perfect because we couldn't. It's not just his death and resurrection that matter. Those are obviously important. But it's his life that fulfilled God's requirement of perfection. Only his life on top of ours, muting and smothering our lives out, can make us acceptable to God. You can try all day long. You can be as perfect as you think you can be. But guess what? You're always going to be comparing yourself to the person next to you, not to Jesus. You compare yourself to Jesus and you say, let me put my holiness, my righteousness, my perfection up against his. And you lose every time. <laughs> I lose every single time. Now, I can win when I compare myself to other people. I look far enough. I'm going to find somebody who's not as good as me. Yeah, there's somebody better. But, you know, they're, they're, you know we're talking about this person. But Jesus came. To live a perfect life that I couldn't. And then he died a death that I deserve. You realize he didn't deserve the death he died, but God, it says in the scripture, was pleased to pour out his wrath on his own son. God was pleased to take on himself our sin and die in our place so that we might be set free from the penalty and the power of sin. That's how it works. Jesus came, fulfilled all of the law of God as how, in, in how he lived. And then he took upon himself the punishment for our sin. He was our substitute on the cross. It's not just a cool story. It's not just a nostalgic thing we talk about at Easter. It is absolutely the, the, the most incredible and most important story that there is. And the most important truth that we have. But he didn't stay dead after he died. God raised him. To show us what will happen to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those whose lives have been muted and thrown upon His grace. Who've been smothered by His perfection and thrown at His mercy. Those who have believed in Him as the Son of God. The only substitute for our sins. He was raised again to show us here's what happens. Death is not the end. Sin is not the end. In fact, one day at the resurrection when Jesus returns, we will be raised again. 
That cemetery over there will be full of folks who will be bursting out of the ground to go meet Jesus. To live with Him forever. That's redemption. And then one day, as I just alluded to, there will be restoration. Not yet. We live in the now and the not yet. The in-between time. We can experience freedom from the penalty and power of sin right now, but we don't have all of the fullness of what God has promised us yet. Not yet. Restoration will come. Jesus came the first time to offer redemption. He's coming the second time. And that's going to be in judgment and making everything right. There will be no second chance at that point. Creation will be returned to its original design. There will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new life, a new reality for us. There will be no more sin. There will be no more curse, no more sickness, no more drama, praise God. There will be no more searching for meaning and fulfillment, no more addictions, no more divorce papers. It will all be new. Restoration. That's God's story right there. He made it the way He wanted. We messed it up. Jesus came to make it right, and one day He'll come back and He will settle all the scores. If we're going to be the witnesses just like these folks were, we've got to know that story. I spend that much time on it, not to bore you with details that you might already know, but just in case you've forgotten, just in case you need a framework, just in case you say, hmm, that makes sense. I, I can remember that. Put it in your mind, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We're called to be witnesses to that great story, God's story. But in that story, we've also got to know not only his, but to know our story, know your story. Really simple. You have a story to tell if you're a believer in Jesus. And that's a before Jesus and after Jesus. Let me tell you mine. Before Jesus, I was an eight-year-old kid who hadn't done a whole lot of things wrong, to be honest with you. I mean, what at eight years old really do you do that's that really bad? You know, you tell some lies and, you know, that kind of stuff. Disobey your parents. But, you know, it's like that old story. I hadn't shot anybody. You know, I don't remember really stealing anything that I didn't give back. You know, I was an eight-year-old kid before Jesus. But I was an eight-year-old kid that was going to grow up thinking that I could get myself to God. I was a great kid. I mean, I, I was... My, my, There's a guy that I worked with in my home church, and he called me the golden boy. I've told you this before. Because there are old ladies at my church, still, in my home church. They are there. Who I, I could go to Louisville, rob a bank. They put my picture clearly on the television screen, and they would swear up and down. It's not him. There's no way he could do that. I was going to be the eight-year-old kid, though, that grew up thinking that I was good enough for God to love me just because I was good. That's the kid I was going to be. Maybe that's your story. And then I remember in the summer of 1985, sitting there, the edge of my bed, my mother talking to me, telling me the gospel story once again. And I remember it hitting me. And they're in tears, broken, knowing that I needed a Savior, that I could never be good enough for God to love me. But I could never be so bad that He wouldn't love me. And that I knew Jesus had come to live the life I couldn't, to die the death that I deserved, and He was raised again. And that through faith in Him, I could receive the gift of eternal life. My after Jesus story 
is not some dramatic change of life, if you understand what I mean by that. I didn't go from being a rotten, awful, nasty, stealing, conniving, eight-year-old kid to being an angel. I was still the same kid who did a lot of the right things. But let me tell you this. That story is just as dramatic as any major life change story that anybody's ever had. Why? Because at one moment, I didn't know Jesus, and I was under the wrath of God. And the very next moment, I had been forgiven. Of all the sins I had committed, the sins I would commit, and the ones that I will commit from this point on, I've been forgiven of all those. That's my before Jesus and after Jesus story. For some, you've got a dramatic story of God rescuing you from a life of addiction and sin and awful stuff that you were a part of, and praise God for that story. Let me just tell you this. Not every story is the same, but they're all just as dramatic. Because before Jesus, I'm lost. And after Jesus, after experiencing His grace through faith, (laughs) I'm made new. I wonder what your story would be. You say, before Jesus, I I was a person of addiction, or wandering, or self-righteousness, or full of broken relationships, or using people, or just defeat, or trying to be perfect. And then you'd say, you know what, let me tell you, after Jesus, once I met Him, once I threw myself on His mercy and gave myself to Him, I'm forgiven. I'm now a friend of God instead of an enemy of God. He's now in my life working on me. And guess what's happened to my marriage? Guess what's happened to my parenting, to my mind, to the choices that I make, to the addiction that maybe I still struggle with, but the Lord is helping me work through that. Guess what's happened to my emotions? Guess what's happened in my job and my attitudes? Your story is vital to the people that you're around. I I hope and I pray Drew and I were talking about this back there right before the service. I I hope and I pray that you will invite people to come to church. I mean, I really do. I I can promise you this. I'm not going to preach a perfect sermon. I don't have one in me. But I'm going to try to tell the people that you invite to church. If you bring a friend, a family member, I'm going to try to tell them about Jesus and their need for him. I guarantee you that. They're not going to get out of here with just a a nice little life lesson. I'm going to try to tell them about the truth of Jesus. But let me tell you. You, through your story, will be able to reach people I'll never meet. You'll be able to reach people that will never come to hear me preach. The idea of going and telling your story is vital. need to know his story, know your story, and I think equally important is to know their story. You see, I've listed some things on on the bulletin that, that might help you with this. You know, we're dealing with real people who have some very real problems. They live in a real world with real families, and they don't need us to just preach at them. They need us to understand them, to love them just because they exist, for us to know their story. And so maybe you'd spend some time to get to know some of the folks that God has placed in your life. And you say, I don't know what to tell them about Jesus. Start with just learning their story. And understanding them, asking them some questions and listening to their answers. Or listening for what's important to them. Or why they do the things they do. Talk about work. You know, people love to talk about what they do or what they did. And you say, well, that's just kind of small talk. You know what? Yeah, it is. But that's how you get to know somebody. That's how you listen. Listen for the hurt and the pain and the issues that they've faced. Ask them questions about what they enjoy and what they don't enjoy. What a typical week is like for them. How they're getting along in their family. 
Ask them questions and listen. Be sensitive also to their needs. I read something this week that was a a response from people who don't claim any faith in Jesus, given in response to a survey about what could Christians do that could help to connect with you a little bit. So some honest feedback. Here's something that they said. They said, listen to me. Don't label me. Don't try to have all the answers. Put yourself in my place. Be genuine. Be my friend with no other motives. Be there when no one else is. Maybe you would be sensitive to their needs. And it would help you then to look for some common ground. You say, I'm not sure who God wants me to go and try to influence. I would venture to say it's people you're already around. Folks with whom you share a a history. I enjoy talking to people who are from Louisville or have spent some time there. Why? Because I spent some time there. I'm from there. We start to connect about different things, and maybe it opens a door. Maybe you've got somebody in your same stage of life. They're raising kids just like you are. You know, they've hit retirement age exactly when you have. They worked at the same place. They've been the same places. They've got similar goals in life. Look for some common ground and figure out that way that you can build a bridge rather than a wall. There's a great story in Acts chapter 17. I'm not going to take time to read it, but the Apostle Paul was was in Athens, in Greece. And he came upon some people who were philosophers and some folks that didn't quite understand the God they were trying to connect with. And Paul said, look, I, I, I understand you're trying to worship this God that you that you don't know, let me tell you about the one who is, the one that I know. He found a way to talk with them. I told you there's one story to tell, that one job really that we all have. And as a believer in Jesus, as a church of believers in Jesus, we have one job, and that is to tell his story by telling your story. You'll see that there on the backside. I'm going to give you the last ones very quickly, by the way. You have one job. Tell his story by telling your story. You say, I, you know, if I just go up to somebody and try to talk to them about creation, fall, redemption, restoration, would you mind if I gave you a thesis on that? They're probably going to tolerate you for just a couple of minutes and then look at you like you're crazy. But if you begin to talk to them about your story, here's what God's done in my life. Here's my sin, but here's the redemption. Here's how things have changed. This is who I am. Here's what's going on. Tell his story. Tell God's story by telling your story. Let me give you some very simple tips. Here's how you can tell your story maybe a little bit better. Maybe a little differently. First of all, make it simple. Just a before and after story. That's all it is. Here's who I was. Here's who I am. This is me without Jesus. This is me with Jesus. Pretty simple. One storyline. That's all it is. Secondly, make it short. You say, I don't want to cram anything down anybody's throat. Fine, just take a minute or less and move on. Make it short. The elevator pitch, if you will. You got 60 seconds in the elevator between floors, and you say, hey, if, I, if somebody were to ask me, if I were talking with somebody, why in the world do you go to church? And it's kind of antiquated, isn't it? Well, let me just tell you my story real quick. Boom, 60 seconds. Make it short, 100 words or less. Thirdly, make it clear. 
I would encourage you to find some different words besides those traditional churchy words. Now, some of those words are not sinful or wrong. They just don't make any sense to somebody who's never been in church. I've been born again. You know, the the disciples, the, the people that were around Jesus at the time, the folks who didn't understand, they say, how can a person be born twice should he re-enter his mother's womb they didn't even get it i'm not saying that that terminology is wrong or unbiblical but figure out a way to talk about things without using those words that somebody would have to be in church week in and week out to understand make sense fourthly make it humble you didn't save yourself couldn't can't won't ever be able to so focus on jesus The fact that He is your only hope. That you have no righteousness, no holiness, no perfection apart from Him. That you can't please God, but He did for you. That you deserve to die, but He did it in your place. That you can't bring yourself back to life, but He will one day. Let me encourage you this week to get lost in a really good story. This is not on your bulletin, but I I thought it might be helpful. Maybe you'd pick one of these this week. But you would either memorize God's story. I mean, just just go through it and creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That you would write out your story. I'd love for you to email it to me. I mean, I, I really would. We can go back and forth and we, you know, we can talk about it. We can converse. And, and then listen to their story. And then look for ways to tell God's story by telling yours. We're going to close this morning, the last few minutes, by taking communion, the Lord's Supper. A powerful demonstration, an incredible symbol of the story of God. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that anytime we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death. We tell the story once again. And that's what we're going to do. A a powerful display of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Here's how it's going to go. In in just a moment, I'll ask our our deacons to join me down here. and, And we'll distribute the small cracker first, representing the body of Jesus Christ that was broken and crucified on the cross for us. And they'll hand that out, and we'll take our time with it. There's no rush. And you hold that, and I'll read a scripture, and I'll pray, and we'll take that together as a church family. And then they'll hand out the little cup of juice, colored red to symbolize the blood of Jesus that was poured out to wash our sins away. Hang on to that. I'll read a scripture, I'll pray, and then we will take that together. We offer this this morning to you if you're a believer in Jesus, a part of the family of God. I trust that you'll spend some time with him in the moments of quietness. I would, I would encourage you, as Paul does, to tell us to search our hearts. Do you truly know Jesus? This is for believers in him. Not to earn your way to God. Jesus already did that. But maybe this morning, even in these few moments, you need to throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus. And say, Lord, I've never given you my life. I'm just like that eight-year-old kid he talked about. I'm just trying to be good enough. And maybe the good will outweigh the bad. But Jesus, this morning, I realize I'm compared to you, not to that person. So I need your grace and your mercy. And I believe in you. 
Throw yourself on Him this morning as we participate in this incredible display.